Thank you to those who responded, and if you want to let us know what you think, please let us know on Instagram or Twitter, or if you know me on Discord, you can shoot me a ping on there as well. One thing we are going to do more of is talk about board games. We're going to go away from the quick hits and misses series and just talk to you more consistently about what we are playing. It might not be weekly, but we will definitely do it more than monthly. And that starts today, where we will cover the games we played at Family Game Night the other day. When I'm at my in-laws in Niigata, which is the northern part of Japan, they are always interested in these packages I get. Being in Japan, it's so much cheaper to get my stuff sent there from sites like Sudogaya and Booth, so when I visit, it's my time to reload on my game collection. This usually means that we have several game nights while I'm there, and the other day was a great day to learn some new games. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about Takeo Yamada's Fairy Concerto, Reiner Knizia's Galaxy Nekobunobashi, Carl Chuddock's and Chris Sislik's Red 7, and Daryl Chow's Rainforest City. That means that we have three games from Asia today and one not from Asia to cover, so let's get it started. The first game we are covering today is Carl Chuddock and Krista Slick's Red 7, published in 2014, originally by Asmati Games, but now has been published all over the world by various local publishers. This card game has a very straightforward premise. You need to be winning at the end of your turn. Now what does this mean? Well, each card has a number on it and a color. Each color denotes a different rule that you can play with. On your turn, you'll do a combination or just one of either playing a card from your hand in front of you, which is called your palette, or onto the central pile called the canvas. Whatever color is on top of the canvas is the rule that you're playing with as a table. These rules are things like whoever has the most different colors wins, or whoever has the most even cards wins. So on your turn, you need to play cards in front of you to get it so that you are now winning based on the canvas rule, or play a card to the canvas that changes the rule so that you're winning. If you can't do that, you lose and are out of the round. Last person standing gets points based on how many cards in front of them apply to the current rule when they win. I previously talked about this game in the holiday shopping guide as a good stocking stuffer, but that was about the extent of it, as I had only played on Board Game Arena, and while I didn't love it, I know people who did, but I finally got to play it physically in the lovely Japanese edition, and wow, sometimes I forget how big of a difference it can be to play games physically versus digitally. Now don't get me wrong, I am so happy that I have a Board Game Arena account, and that I can play with people all over the world, because I don't think I'd get much played if I didn't. But there are certain games that just work so much better physically than asynchronously online. The game physically was snappy, taking out most 30 minutes, and that was the first game when everyone was learning all the rules of the cards. And with such a simple rule of win, or you lose, it makes it easy to internalize what you need to do. But then the question becomes, how do I do it? And as your hand gets smaller and smaller, the choices become less and less, and your brain gets more taxed and taxed. There are cards that do certain powers, like the five that has you play another card to your palette. Well, okay, so if I play a five, then I need to play another card. And then, oh, I can play another five. So now I can play three cards to my palette this turn instead of just one. Nice. And oh, those fives and this six are different colors. So, oh, that means I'm now winning because the rule right now is most different colors wins. But now I have way less cards in my hand for my next turn. But okay, that's a problem for the me a minute later. It's one of those games that since I've played, I really can't stop thinking about. And because the setup and the rounds are so quick, it's really easy to just crank out a game. Oh, we have 20 minutes until dinner? Let's play a quick game of Red 7. And they've been down to do as such. I think this is the only game they've asked to play multiple times. 
It's an addicting loop, the adrenaline of possibly being eliminated, and then the relief when you're safe to battle another day. Now, this is the one thing I think some people will be turned off by, the elimination. You can be eliminated, and it's never a great time to be the first one out. But it's surprising just how close everyone can be to being eliminated. You're never more than a couple minutes from being able to play again, because you might be the first one out, but shortly after the next person is out, and then another minute later and the final person's out. Okay, next round. I think elimination is fine as long as it doesn't take too long to get playing again. And I think this very point is why I'm falling a bit out of favor with King of Tokyo, which is a game I seem to like more than anyone else anyway. I've just had too many games lately in which one person is out way earlier than everyone else and just sits there watching us have a good time for 20 minutes. And maybe that's why I'm so happy with Red 7. It is so quick that you can still feel the pressures from being eliminated, and you can still be eliminated, but it doesn't ruin the game. Altogether, it's tough for me to figure out where in my collection this fits. And I think I've come to the conclusion that it's going to sit in the same area as a Fuji flush. Red 7 really shouldn't be taken too seriously, because there's a lot of luck going on here. But if you're okay with that, it makes an excellent next step card game. A filler, really. I like this about a thousand times better than Llama, another game that is trying to be an Uno replacement. And that's the last point I want to make about this game. I think there are a lot of people going into this game thinking it as an Uno replacement, and I just don't see it at all. When I think of a game as a replacement, it gives me the same feeling, but maybe does it better. And lately, there's been a lot of videos of board game reviewers doing lists of top 10 board game replacements, and we are thinking of joining in on the fun, but you can see what I mean on those lists. It'd be like Awkward Guests replacing Clue, because they are both whodunits, and give the same feeling of having to deduce who the killer is, with what weapon they did it with, and where they did it. Red 7 doesn't give me any of the same feelings as Uno. Besides that they have numbers and colors on the card, there's almost nothing else alike here. What I think the more apt way of describing it is as a next step after Uno. Okay, your family has explored Uno and needs some more card games. Instead of going to Skippo, which is a game I loathe, go to Red 7. Try it out. It's not a whole lot of rules. There's enough luck there that the winner isn't always the same person, and the combo-tastic nature of it gives it an addicting loop. It's not going to be for everyone, but if you're looking for a quick filler game that is a bit zany, I'd give it a try, especially because it's only around 10 bucks. And that's Red 7, designed by Carl Chuddock and Chris Sislik, and published by Asmati Games and a lot of others. And if the other games we talk about interest you on today's podcast, I definitely take a look at the Japanese version of it. I'm trying to figure out the order for the rest of these games, but I think I'm going to go with Fairy Concerto next. This game is designed by Takeo Yamada, who previously designed Amalfi, and is published by Uchibakoya, the publishers behind Aqua Garden, and their most recent Kickstarter, Ostia. I think at this point, Uchibakoya is most easily identified by their gorgeous meeple work, and this game is no different, but wait, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. If you've ever played Draftosaurus, you're about 80% of the way there with this game. The goal of the game is to build the best orchestra by drafting fairy musicians. Each player will grab six meeples from the bag, choose one, then pass the rest to the next player over from them. You'll do this until you run out of fairies, then do it all again. After two rounds, you're done. Time to score. And this is where Fairy Concerto really differs itself from Draftosaurus, which I'm sorry, this is not the last time I'm going to compare these two games. Draftosaurus has two sides of the board, but they score the same every game. But in Fairy Concerto, during the setup phase, you'll draw cards that represent a pianist, a violinist, and a soloist. These want a certain combinations of musicians in the orchestra so they can perform, so maybe this pianist wants a bunch of strings and brass players, but the next game you get a pianist that wants lots of percussion. You'll also have your own personal goal cards, but you can get more of those by drafting a composer on your turn instead of a musician. You'll also have a trendy instrument every game, which if you can have those in your orchestra, well, your orchestra is just so fashionable and you'll get points for that too. What this does is really make it so that every game you're doing a different combination of things to get points. At this point, I kind of have my strategy for Draftosaurus, and every game kind of feels the same. But the variability is one of the places where Fairy Concerto shines brightest. It remains simple in terms of rule sets, but every game is just slightly different. 
And the added personal goal cards and the risk you take of saying, hold on, this card isn't going to work well with the other scoring mechanisms, so I'm going to take a risk and draw a composer card this turn instead of a musician, is tantalizing. According to the designer, this was the main selling point of the game. The idea that you could take additional cards to score more points, but you risk losing out on the musicians. Really, this just feels like an improvement to Draftosaurus. In fact, according to their designer diaries, this is where the design process started. It has a lot of the same skeleton, but every step of it just feels a bit... more. There's more variability. The meeples in the overall production feels better. The amount of thinking is more. And for some, this may be where the goodness of the game ends, because other than if you like dinosaurs, Draftosaurus often succeeds just in its simplicity. It succeeds because every game is pretty much the same, but with different luck of the draw. But also because of this, it kind of sits in this 6 to 7 out of 10 range. It's a fine game, and I've recommended it to you before. But after a while, I'm just kind of ready to move on. And we talked about games replacing games. Fairy Concerto is replacing Draftosaurus for me. I like the solo mode in Fairy Concerto, I like that there seems to be a reason for actually adding your orchestra members, and I like that every game is different enough to feel variable, but yet the central concept is the same. There isn't a whole lot to go over, it's a quick 15 minute filler game that is very light. Now the hard part is the question of, do I need to own both? And I don't think so. If you're enjoying Draftosaurus, just keep that, especially because of import fees and such. But if you're looking for one of those games to own and are debating the two, then I would get Fairy Concerto. But it's close. I think Draftosaurus is going to sit at a 6.5 for me and Fairy Concerto a 7 or 7.5 maybe. It's up to you if that's worth the extra money to import. And that's Fairy Concerto, designed by Takeo Yamada and published by Uchiba Goya in 2022. The next game to talk about is Reiner Knizia's Galaxy Neko Nobashi, or Galaxy Cat Extension, published by Stadium Monday in 2022. In a Kinesia fashion, there aren't a lot of rules here, but a very central difficult decision. On your turn, you're simply going to flip over the top card from the deck and choose to put it either in front of you or someone else. Once someone has three cards in front of them, they are full, and another card cannot be put in front of them. However, if you complete a cat with your face-up cards, you can put them in your scoring pile immediately, and you now have more room in front of you. Once everyone has three cards in front of them, the round is over. The first thing to do is see who has the helper cat for this round, which is gotten by having the blue cat card placed in front of you. They get to choose one card and put it in their cat mountain, which is what the scoring pile is called. After that, the UFOs come. Some cards have UFOs on them, and whoever has the most UFOs in front of them gets all three cards abducted. After that, everyone with face-up cards add it to their score pile, and the next round starts. Now there are also a couple of other cards, like the cat that walks on two legs that is worth no points, and a cat god that has everyone move all their face-up cards to the person to their left. But at the end of the game, each completed cat in the score pile is worth points. Each cat has a head and tail. And if you get both, that's a complete cat. You can add body cards to that cat from other parts of your score pile to get more points, as long as they are the same kind of cat. You're basically making one of those long cats, like from the old meme. Incomplete cats are worth no points. And that's 100% of the rules. I have to say, I was very worried about this game. I definitely like some of Reiner Knizia's games, but I just so didn't like Llama that I was worried about another light game from him. I know that doesn't make any sense, but it's the truth. Leading up to this podcast, I've been trying to come to a conclusion as to my feelings about this game, because there are some interesting points to it. There's the decision of how nice you want to be. Do you want to get in other people's way a lot, or do you want to just keep to yourself and hope you don't attract the ire of the others? Do you try to get the helper cat, but there's so many blue cat cards that it probably won't last in front of you for long before someone else gets it instead. So maybe you are just better off trying to complete the cat so that you can definitely get points, but then you have to worry about those stinking UFOs. And oh, it looks like everyone else has less than me, so I need to give them more UFOs, but now I'm back to the problem of should I be nice to the other players so they aren't mean to me? All this from a very simple, draw a card, play it in front of someone else, rule set. And for that, 
this game is interesting. But it also just leaves me feeling dissonant. The card art, everything just leads me to believe this is a family game, especially with kids, but definitely not. There is just so much luck here and so many chances to be mean, even unintentionally, and then kind of bust because of the UFO cards that I don't think this would be good at all with young children. This game gave me anxiety with just trying to unbury myself through no fault of my own, and then because of bad card draws that again are not my fault, there was no way for me to score points. So, okay, how about a game that you play as a more strategic game with maybe older kids or adults? Also, no. There's just way too much luck here, from not just the card draw, but also the cat god cards that have you move everything left, or the helper cat that saves people who would have lost the UFO race, or the cat that walks on two legs just cluttering up your tableau. Meanwhile, the person over there has completed three cats already and is having the time of their lives. Okay, so how about as a party game? Or maybe a game that you should go into it knowing that you shouldn't take it seriously. Well, that's where I think you must go into it with. If you can go into it with a mindset with, okay, there's going to be some unfair draws, there's going to be the cat god that is going to screw up my plans, that's just the game, and I just gotta go with the flow. That's how you're gonna have fun. But at the end of the day, I think as I'm talking to you now, that kind of leads me to my overall impression. It seems like you have to try to have fun with this game, rather just coming naturally. There are parts of it that are fun, and when you're doing well, it really is an enjoyable time. But the problem is that I've had just as many games of this in which I wasn't having any fun at all. And because of this, I was constantly wondering if anyone else at the table was having the same thoughts as I was. And that's not a game I want to introduce to people, a game in which they have a high likelihood of feeling luck and fate itself go against them. Luckily, this game doesn't take long, maybe 15 to 20 minutes with the teach, but at the end of the day, there are a lot better games out there for your money that are better family games, better filler strategic games, better party games, and even better luck-based light games like Red 7 that we mentioned earlier. And that's Galaxy Nekonobashi by Rainer Knizia and published by Stadium Monday. Finally, we have Rainforest City, designed by Daryl Chow and published by Origam. I think it's Origame or Origame, I don't know, in 2021. Origame is a super interesting board game publisher because they are based in Singapore and have the goal of introducing Asian culture and stories, and they keep that aesthetic. So right away when receiving the box for this game, the art was striking to me and made me want to break open the box immediately to find what was inside. What was inside was kind of depressing because Rainforest City, what it's really about and it says so in the first sentence of the rulebook, is that we are building up a landscape, an ecosystem, for animals to thrive in, but humans are killing it by building houses. And this comes through in the game mechanics. The game works like this. Each player has a color that they will be, and in the middle of the board is a fruit marker with these different colored arrows pointing in a direction. In each direction is a pair of cards that are drawn randomly. These cards might have fauna on them, or animals, or they are terrain tiles. The player, whose turn it is, will choose which pair of cards they want and point their player arrow on the marker in that direction and they get to take both cards. The other players get to choose one of the two cards that their colored arrow is now pointing towards. From here, you get to place your cards. Terrain cards are placed adjacent to other terrain cards in front of you, but at least one part of the new cards has to touch something already in front of you. You can rotate it to your liking otherwise, which you'll want to do so you can grow your ecosystems. If they have a token on the card, you can take a token. But the problem is that many of them also show houses. And if you build that card, meaning you're building a house, you have to remove the token shown, basically meaning you're killing part of the ecosystem. The other kind is the fauna and the animals. These cards can also be rotated, and most animals can only live in a certain terrain type, except for otters who are just like, man, I just want to live somewhere. If you can match up the card with the right terrain, you get that token. However, if you can't, then the token goes to the compost pile will be negative points at the end of the game. There's also an advanced variant where throughout the game, you'll need to have certain fauna, for example. And if you complete that objective first, you get points. At the end of the game, you'll score points based on your ecosystem. For having the fauna on the correct terrain, cool, you get a point. Now, everything else is based on if you have what that needs to be supported. For example, the herbivore needs you to have fauna, 
So if you have the fauna in that touching terrain, you get to score for the herbivore. If you don't, well, there's nothing for that herbivore to eat, so you don't score points. Carnivores, in turn, need an herbivore to score. The fun part is that not only that, each token can only support one other token, so you can't have one plant being the absolute basis for three carnivores and three herbivores. Nope. One fauna, one herbivore, one carnivore. You really are making a thriving ecosystem. You get three points for houses, but you lose points if there's a token touching the house, because again, you building there is causing disruption to the ecosystem. And then you lose points for everything you had to kill along the way. Most points wins. Holy smokes, what a game. I came to this game feeling like Daryl Chow was a designer that really enjoyed the theming for his games, like Sashi and Sashi's Remember Our Trip, more than the actual gameplay itself. Fine, but not exciting per se. This game, however, was a great success. The combination of the very real problem of deforestation as a theme, with a very cool food chain mechanism, was a real triumph. Throughout the game, you are constantly thinking about what animals you can support, what terrain you need to add, and if there is any room for real estate development. I'm usually not a person who loves spatial puzzles, but this one was simple enough that I could get what I needed to do and figure out if I could do it, but difficult enough to not be immediately obvious, and I needed to make a plan as to how I could best grow my ecosystems to not only score points this turn, or rather, not lose points this turn, but also plan ahead. Okay, am I leaving myself room to grow so I can support future herbivores and carnivores? If I'm playing the advanced variant with objectives, is meeting an objective going to hinder my plans for the future, or can I afford to go after it now? And because you get a card on everyone's turns, you are consistently engaged in what everyone is doing. You sit there going, oh, please, please don't take what I want. And okay, if they choose that pair of cards, I'll be okay because I'm sending a cross from them and I'll get to choose one of these two cards, which will help my water terrain. It's interesting because you can still have a good move, even if it isn't your move per se. And I like that, that you're not the only person who can help you. But altogether, I think the real success here is the absolutely stellar blending of theme and gameplay. The box is small, so probably more environmentally conscious. And in the game, there is a book about the animals that live around Singapore with some lovely pictures. It makes this game feel very real and think about the impact that humans are having on the environment. And because the gameplay mechanics rewards planning around the animals and fauna and trying to maintain that balance as much as possible to not encroach on the animal's ecosystem, it is an overall package that can see not only getting played in homes, but in schools. Everything in this small package feels like it was well thought out, from the production of the pieces and the rulebook and the box size to the solo variant to the art. This game really made us think the most about not only our moves, but on what they meant. And that that is at all interesting to you, I'd give this one a look. And that's Rainforest City, designed by Daryl Chow and published by Origami. Well, that's all for today, and we appreciate you listening. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review on your podcast app. I cannot tell you how important it is for the algorithm that allows people to find us. And check us out on Twitter at the BG Dojo and on Instagram at BoardGameDojo. We also have a YouTube if you want to hear more about some great Asian games, as well as interviews with those in the industry. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, ta-ne!